water. Yo, what is going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Sound of Water podcast. As always, hope y'all are doing good, staying hydrated. You know, it's really, really hot in, in Texas right now. And um, I, I've been dropping a lot of water facts lately and wanted to, to keep it a little consistent and change it up a little bit. So, so first, did you guys know that bottled water has an expiration date? But the thing about bottled water expiration dates is it's actually for the bottle and not for the water. So you could actually transport the water into another container and preserve the water. So, yep, just soak that in. <laughs> well, I'm here with my homeboy, my compadre, my amigo, my, my best pal in town, Josh. How you doing, man? How's it going? I'm chilling, man. How you doing? <laughs> Is my voice really that high? <laughs> This is my best Josh impersonation, dude. I'm chilling, man. How about you? I'm chilling, man. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, well, well, David, how about uh, how about you do the honors of introducing our guest? Very excited. All right. So, uh, what's going on, everyone? Thank you for tuning in. Um, today we have with us a very, very special guest. Very, very excited to uh, speak with her about a variety of topics here. Um, so we have with us Mel Watkins. Um, Mel Watkins has been working in English language and social justice education in South Korea since 2013 and has volunteered for several organizations dedicated to promoting migrant art, equal rights, and anti-discrimination legislation in South Korea. She is currently involved as an organizer and a writer for Black Lives Matter Korea. And you can find her recent work in Hong Kong published anthology, Black in Asia, and the 2014 Canadian anthology Trailblazion, Black Women in Asia, and on her blog, Equal Opportunity Reader, which is about decentering whiteness in literature. Hello, Mel. How, how's it going? Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Welcome, welcome. So um, I read off a little bit about your background and a little bit of your credentials and some works that you have published. Um, but if you could go into a little bit more about your background, uh, where are you from and what led you to go live in Korea? Right. Okay. Good question. Those blurbs sound so much better when someone else reads them. You know, I wrote it thinking, oh, okay. <laughs> you sounded and then pretty you read good it out. there. And yeah, exactly. I'm like, wow, I'm actually kind of cool. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm from the States originally. I'm from Denver and I've been living in Korea since 2013. But before that, I lived in the UK for six years. I moved to the UK in 2006, uh, so yeah, six years, almost seven years. Um, and I, long story short, the reason I came to Korea was because I was curious. I studied uh, theology in grad school, and I was looking specifically at cultural theology and the way that people create identities, um, both kind of within and without the church, like how people create a cultural identity specifically multicultural or multi-ethnic identities. And I was looking at different places and I realized that Korea is the only developed country in the world that gets to choose how it becomes multicultural because technically it isn't yet. <laughs> so um, yeah, so Korea, most countries that are developed, basically what happens is they, uh, when they're 
developing, they become multicultural and then later on they develop. So, you know, somebody brings slaves or workers or somebody colonizes somebody or something like that happens. And then later the country becomes developed. But Korea did the opposite. They were on their own for a very long, well, not exactly on their own, but more or less isolated aside from the occasional invader for a really long time. And then suddenly, well, more or less suddenly became developed in the span of human history and in the, yeah, in the scope yeah. of human history, suddenly became developed and then thought, oh, wow, the birth rate's getting lower and we need somebody to do all of the dirty, difficult and dangerous work and we want to globalize. So let's become multicultural. Hmm. And I find that fascinating. So that's what brought me here. I teach cultural studies. I do workshops and things on difference and diversity. And I kind of am part of the diversity here. <laughs> so, um, so I that that's why I came. Um, and also just to try something different. I didn't really want to live in the U.S. again yet. <laughs> so yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that you had studied some theology back in the mm-hmm. day. Um, are you a religious person yourself? I wouldn't say that necessarily. I think mm-hmm. uh, even when I was religious, I wouldn't have called myself religious. Sure. <laughs> I've always been very progressive in my my beliefs and my theology. I'm very much into the idea that people are precious. So that's, I think, why I got into theology to begin with. Just so you guys know, if the people are just listening to the audio version of this, mm-hmm. Mel Watkins is a black woman living oh, in yeah. Korea. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty big... You should mention that, yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah I, I am black, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's going to bring a completely unique perspective to, uh, to all of this worldwide traveling that you've done, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I think in some ways. I mean, my experience definitely different than other than certain other people who travel. And I I think that's that's really been apparent to me living in Korea. So yeah. <laughs> mm. So so going off that then, what what has it been like living as a black woman in Korea? So you have lived in the US and also the UK. Yeah. Um, how is it similar and how is it different than living in, in those countries? Right. You know, I get asked that question a lot and it's kind of difficult to answer because, you know, there's this great, great quote by Shonda Rhimes. She says that people are always asking her, what's it like to be a black woman? And she says she doesn't know how to answer because she's never been anything else. So my answer to that is largely observational and comparing things to my own experience. But I think in Korea, I'm more the fact that I am black and that makes me different is spoken about a lot more obviously, obviously. Um, And uh, also just the people are very unfamiliar. So there are stereotypes, but they, they're really largely born out of total ignorance and unfamiliarity, except for in a media kind of idea. Whereas in the U S or the UK, people do actually know black people in person, but Mm. they don't necessarily, that doesn't, they still have stereotypes. Yeah. So I feel like it's interesting in Korea because people will believe really strange and unusual things about black people, but then Uh they meet you and you say, no, actually that's not it. And they're like, oh, I didn't know. And they're fairly open to changing their minds. Whereas I feel like in the US and the UK, you can meet somebody who has a lot of prejudices or is outright racist towards somebody who is black. And you can say, no, actually what you think is wrong. Well, look at what's happening now in US politics. You can say, well, actually black lives do matter. And people are like, no, actually all lives matter. (laughs) So like that, that, that stereotype is the most important thing. Even if they actually have living, breathing black people, in their lives in front of them, people are not as open to having their minds and their ideas changed. 
if you could give like a like a rough percentage of the demographics in Korea that you've experienced? Oh goodness. Uh <laughs> wow, I don't know. That's a really good question. Like, you know, is, I'm it, not is sure. it like 0.003% black or is it's it like got 2%? To be, well, no, it's got to be somewhere in the 0.003% black because to put things in perspective, the reason Korea isn't considered a multicultural country, a multicultural society yet, is because you need to have at least 10% of the population with ethnic origins outside of that country before, according to... Uh, is not the World Health Organization, the the one that does global demographics and it's slipping my mind right now. So you actually need to have, that. that's, that's the benchmark. 10% of the population needs to have ethnic origins from outside of the country. And Korea is not there yet. Um, and that's including people from all over the world. So it's, while the, while the number is definitely rising, the percentage is rising and that's, but that's foreigners from everywhere, anybody, anywhere outside of Korea. Mm. Whereas, so... If I think about it, once you take the military out of the equation, it's got to be a tiny, tiny percentage. When I first yeah. moved here almost eight years ago, um, I remember I I had to like travel, like make plans and travel to other cities to see other black people. Right? Hmm. Like it was I'd never like randomly found black people in, in places, but now I do. So the numbers are rising. I mean, I'll see somebody on the subway. It used to be like, have you both seen the color purple? No, what's that? Is that a, oh, is that a okay. It's a it's a movie. Yeah, it's a film based on a on a novel by Alice Walker, like a ground groundbreaking African American novel by Alice Walker that was then made into a really good film um, by Steven Spielberg. Stars Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah, Danny Glover, classic cast, fantastic movie. And in that movie, there's a scene, and if anybody black is listening to this, you'll totally understand what I'm talking about. There's a scene where two sisters are reunited, and it's the most dramatic, over the top, but also the most beautiful thing ever. And when I first moved to Korea, every time I saw another black person without <laughs> planning to do so, it felt like that scene. Like I would see somebody from across the room and think, my sister, and like run across and like, you know, hug them just, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Where do you get hair products? <laughs> so that was how it felt when I first got here. But recently, you know, Hallyu is a thing and uh, there's a lot more students coming from the U.S. and from other countries with large population and from African countries as well. So uh, you're starting to see a lot more black people. That's an interesting point because I've been to Korea a few times in my life. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, personally, I've never seen a black person in, in Korea. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I don't live in Korea, so I'm not, I wouldn't mm -hmm. consider myself what we call a Korean Korean. Mm -hmm. But even as a Korean American, being in Korea, if, I feel like if I saw a black person, I'd be like, whoa, like, mm -hmm. that's pretty rare. Because uh, like you were saying earlier, I think Koreans living in Korea, their perception of black people is largely painted by famous people, you know. So mm -hmm. I, I was in Korea just this past winter, met up with a friend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the only black people that he like knows of or like pays attention to is like, is, like Tupac, mm -hmm. even though he's dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> Obama, like right. Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. LeBron James. Oh, yeah. um, and outside mm -hmm. of that, it's like they don't really see them for anything else. They just see them as either athletes or celebrities or rappers yep, or whatever the case much. may be. Or another interesting thing, when I first got here, uh, the apartment I moved into, the guy who lived there before me had a really expensive cable plan because it had lots of international channels. But these are all like international TV shows with Korean subtitles. And there was one show that was like the American TV channel. Okay. And I was just like my first weekend in Korea. I'm just alone in this apartment with like 
nothing to do and no language skills whatsoever in the countryside, scared to death to go out. So I basically stayed in that apartment that whole first week and watched TV, American TV, because it was, the culture shock was intense. And I was watching this and it was all like those those murder shows like Law and Order and SVU and uh, what is it, CSI. I don't even know what those shows are. I don't watch them, but it was all that kind of show. And I remember thinking at one point, is this what Korean people get as far as an idea of what Black culture is? Because um, if I was Korean and the only Black person I was familiar with in the media was Ice-T, I'd be scared of him too. <laughs> so, like, it's a really interesting kind of He's pretty intimidating situation. there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I remember yeah. thinking, wow, no wonder people are kind of jumping in the street when they see me. First of all, they've never seen anybody who looks like me. And second, their idea of somebody who looks like me is largely formed by this really <laughs> unique American yeah. media lens. So yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of see it from the flip side as well, because I think in American culture, how mm-hmm. Asians are viewed, specifically Koreans nowadays, mm-hmm. Is they see K-pop and they right. just think, mm. you know, Koreans are just all like what they see in Korean music videos. Mm-hmm. And then you have the birth of like a new demographic, which is called the Korea boo, uh, which is basically, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is basically, uh, you mm-hmm. know, basically like white people or even black people mm-hmm. or, or Mexican yeah. people who are just mm-hmm. like lots massive. of black people are Korean boos actually. This you know, is they, very true. They mess mm-hmm. with K-pop and they think yeah. that is what mm-hmm. Korean culture is all about. Um, so yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the same lens that's viewed from from Koreans when they see black people is they think right. everyone, you know, all black males can are just like six foot five at least and mm-hmm. can like dunk or mm-hmm. can at least like rap really fast or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just kind of funny to think of it like yeah, that. Yeah, totally. You know? I have to be honest, when I first came here, I really enjoyed K-pop, but then I lived here and realized that that is not at all related to any sort of <laughs> actual reality. But you know what I think, the reason I think that there are so many Black Korea boos is because the music is familiar and there are a huge amount of like Black writers, Black musicians who contribute yeah. to K-pop behind the scenes. Oh, so like a lot, there's a, there was an article in the New York Times about it recently. A lot of Black writers are kind of exiting from K-pop because they feel unappreciated in the aftermath of Black Lives oh. Matter. Yeah, hmm. so you know a lot of the, a lot of the big K-pop companies who do hire black singers to do lead tracks or who hire black writers for their songs uh, basically didn't say anything to those people when they uh, af- after the whole George Floyd the whole. I don't know what to call this this present moment. Yeah, I, I know. know. I've struggled yeah. with that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, well, it's not just about George Floyd, so I don't want to call it in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests. Sure. And Black Lives Matter has been a thing in for a very long time, so I don't want to call it the Black Lives Matter movement. But it's, it, whatever this present social movement BLM is. BLM to Return of the Jedi. Oh, uh, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, don't, I mean. Oh, you're not hey, feeling that one? I, I don't think I am because, you know, Star Wars is dead, man. <laughs> yeah, we got to keep it going. That's yeah, ever yeah. since ever since Disney bought them, it's been pretty yeah. dead. Okay, I mean, I don't want this movement to become corporatized quite, quite like that. But So so yeah. you, mm-hmm. you brought an interesting point because relating to how you just described how there were Black Black people contributing to K-pop and then Mm -hmm. not really feeling appreciated or supported with all Mm -hmm. of this George Floyd aftermath, everything Mm -hmm. going on. That's strikingly similar to the sentiment that you expressed earlier, where you were saying Mm -hmm. that Korea developed as a country and then got multicultural to almost Mm -hmm. build up their country even more so. So do you feel like that's interrelated? I think so, definitely. I mean... 
the thing is, I don't want to sound hypercritical of Korean culture because number one, I'm not Korean. It's not my culture. And number two, even though I've lived here for quite some time and can speak some of the language and interact, I mean, my, my life outside of work is all in Korean. Um, I still am aware that I am an immigrant here. Right. So I, and it's being an immigrant here is not like being an immigrant in the U S it's a different Mm -hmm. kind of um, situation entirely. So I'm aware of some of the privileges that I have as an American here. So I don't want to sound hypercritical, but I will say that Korea does have a reputation with um, well, with everybody, not just Americans with people from other countries of sort of the idea is, yeah, Korea invites other people in in order to kind of absorb them, copy their ideas, and spit them back out. There's mm. very there's a huge suspicion among the expat and immigrant communities here. Uh, if you have a good idea, you don't want to share it with a Korean person because a Korean person will take it from you and take all the credit, and then not, and, and you'll just be here with your great idea. And that's it. Now, that is a pretty common immigrant story globally, to be honest. I mean, that's something that happens in the U.S. as well. It's something that happens in the U.K. Immigrants come, do hard work, and don't necessarily get the the full recognition for it because nobody in the local population is really interested in listening to to funny foreigners from another country, right? It's analogous to the Asian American experience again in that way, right? But I definitely think that this is something that's spoken a lot about here. I definitely think that Korea ha- is um, is getting a bit of a reputation among immigrants, foreigners, expats, whatever you want to call us, for not being as open as they seem. For example, there's a lot of multicultural initiatives right now, but they are all driven by the government. Actual Korean people are not necessarily that um, thrilled about the idea of having to have foreign neighbors, for example. So like the government has all these multicultural initiatives and there's multicultural centers and all these different art things going on. But if you ask the average Korean person and David, maybe you have some other insight on this, they're like, what, do I have to live next to somebody from Uzbekistan? No, thanks. Do I have to live (laughs) next to somebody from the Congo? Uh Uh, What do do they eat? I'm constantly being asked what I eat, like I don't eat food. (laughs) You know, like there's just this real disconnect (laughs) between the idea of what foreigners can do for Uh us and the idea that foreigners are actually people with lives who breathe air and drink water, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Like I've never lived in korea myself but i have Mm -hmm. spent um some extended time there like i spent some summers there when i was a kid Mm -hmm. and obviously i grew up in a korean household Mm -hmm. um and there is a really strong attitude of koreans uh or from koreans i should say Mm -hmm. where they i think you're right they do display this attitude of well yeah we're open and we accept Mm -hmm. different cultures Mm -hmm. but that can never come first and that can never directly replace anything that is korean so even yes. in even mm. in that openness, it's always Korean first, Korean first, and then mm. okay, like if I have a little more bandwidth for tolerance, then maybe I'll look into your culture a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've definitely felt that very strongly. Um, you know, not to call out my parents, but you know, they're, they're kind of like that too, mm-hmm. um, where their preference is very, very strictly. You know, I want mm-hmm. I want things to be Korean first. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's um, definitely understand that sentiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. And again, to be fair, every community does this to some extent. Every community, it's just the way that communities are built. You, you develop groups to create power by showing preference to people who belong in that group. However, <laughs> right, that can be, it, it depends on how you approach that. If you say, yes, we're really open, come here, 
live the Korean dream, which is actually an idea now. And then you also make a point of excluding people. I mean, it's even built into the language. There's the whole idea of us and you. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, um, I was in a conversation once where a friend of mine who speaks Korean very well, he actually doesn't speak English, he only speaks Korean, but he's not from Korea, made the mistake of referring to Korea as Urinara. And all the Korean people in the room were like, whose country? Our country, (laughs) not your country, ours. (laughs) So, you know, uh, that means our country. And, you know, that, but that's just the way you refer to things in Korean language. Nothing Mm -hmm. is mine, everything is ours. But there's a very clear demarcation between Korean ours (laughs) and global ours. Yeah. And and I think a lot of that is really stemmed from that rapid um, industrialization Mm -hmm. and the rapid growth period that they went through, especially after the Korean Mm -hmm. War. Um, my parents have often told me about this, and I'm actually reading a book about mm-hmm. the the uh, the presidential era of Park Chung Hee, mm-hmm. who was who was uh, who was largely responsible for the rapid industrialization of Korea, and right. the the mentality that was implanted in that generation of people was, mm-hmm. this is our country, we have to own our country, and mm-hmm. therefore you should make the necessary sacrifices so that we can right. advance our country. So it's a very possessive mentality that was implanted mm-hmm. in, in that generation who is now my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can, I can very clearly kind of backtrack and follow that trail of evidence of how that mentality is still so prevalent within the Korean culture. Oh, yeah. And to be, again, I keep saying to be fair, because I'm really conscious of not wanting to sound critical of a country that is not mine. But in a way, that's because I've really internalized that Mm. us, not you kind of mentality. And I'm part Mm. of the you, not the us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and also, it has to do, I think, with Korea's history of being colonized and imperial rule, Japanese imperial rule, and a lot Mm -hmm. of the oppression that happened to Koreans on their own land. It has a lot to do with that as well. That's a defense mechanism. And Mm, it has worked, (laughs) right? So Korea industrialized in 60 years because everybody banded together and worked really hard. One of the other reasons why I initially came to Korea is because I felt a lot of parallels with my own culture as a Black American. 60 years ago, we had Jim Crow laws. And 60 years after, we had a Black president. So, I mean, I felt that kind of same rapid rise socially, um, uh, economically, uh, politically, just in power. I felt I saw that same struggle that Black Americans have gone through in our own country, albeit in a different context. I, I saw parallels to that in Korea and I was really interested. And then I came here and was like talking about that with Korean people. And they were like, no, 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 we are like Finland. And oh, okay. So... <laughs> I'm really happy you bring that up because Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't know that history of Korea, but I guess more specifically Mm -hmm. Japan and and Mm -hmm. how they colonized and it was a lot pretty brutal. I mean, if it was extremely brutal. Yeah. Yeah. If you could just Mm -hmm. go briefly into it because you seem to to understand it and how it relates to the black experience in the U.S. All right. I'm going to try and do this without mentioning any dates because I'm terrible at remembering years. Um, So basically, uh, the uh, well, Japan annexed and colonized Korea and said that Korea was a part of Japan. And this was a long-standing conflict between Korea and Japan. But this it essentially culminated in Japanese in the Japanese government at that time, the Imperial Japanese government attempting to erase Korean culture. 
giving people Japanese names, uh, making Korean language illegal in schools uh, so everybody spoke Japanese. You still find some older Koreans who read Japanese. Well, these are much older Koreans at this point, but who they read Japanese better than they read Korean because they never learned how to read Korean in school. Um, it was just basically an attempt to erase and assimilate Korea into Japan. Uh, and it was stopped effectively just before the Korean War and in some parts, in some ways, by the Korean War. It, it was what finally ended that. Um, like I said, I don't want to get too deeply into details or try and share dates or anything like that, but there were some horrible, horrible atrocities that happened. There is, of course, the issue of comfort women, where Korean women and girls were kidnapped and sent to Japanese military camps, essentially, for use. Um, there was also the issue of the uh, the royal family in Korea were assassinated, essentially. There's very few of them left. They're still around. I actually met um, one of the, the last surviving princes. He's a much older guy, lectures at a university in Jeonju now. Um, but there, you know, there were if there were horrible things that happened in Korea, and it's funny because you're right. Almost nobody knows this. I think people in the West kind of conflate Japan, China, and Korea into one kind of East Asian conglomerate, and don't really know that there are very deep differences between. They're all kind of found, they all have similar foundations, but there's very deep differences between the culture and between the cultures, and very deep differences. Um, very deep historical rifts between those cultures as well because they've been fighting over territory and whose country is whose and who belongs where for such a long time. Many people are still salty with the Japanese. And yes, exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. If you talk to anybody in from any Asian country other than Japan about about the Japanese they're very it's very unflattering usually See, in, but, but in a really enough, yeah. in the mm -hmm. US mm -hmm. they're pretty much just known for like anime and ramen and like totally. and like... Yeah, exactly yeah and there's kind of this I mean, sympathy, which is great. of course and there's there's sort of this sympathy for the for Japan in the US because we dropped bombs on them but that's <laughs> true yeah, yeah but, in, but here that. in yeah but here in Asia it's a whole different sort of situation because if you talk to anybody from an Asian country they're like well except for Taiwan <laughs> people are like oh the Japanese we love Japanese people but the Japanese government the history wow there's this whole mm. huge thing and I hear I heard about it constantly when I first got here I hear about it less now but I actually have a few Japanese friends here and they're even they're very sensitive to it because they live here in Korea and their spouses are Korean they're very sensitive to not being too Japanese in public in some ways. Mm. <laughs> so because they know how people perceive that. It's interesting to me because I do see a lot of parallels with how Korea was persecuted in many ways mm -hmm. and with how Black people have been persecuted in the, in the U.S. for decades mm -hmm. and centuries. Yep. So, mm -hmm. so I'd like to hear a little bit about your experience with Black Lives Matter in Korea. And I wonder if if Koreans make that mental connection. Are they more sympathetic to those issues because they resemble their own experiences, similar to mm -hmm. how you felt with, uh, with trying to learn more about Korea? Mm -hmm. I think once it's explained, because just like a lot of people in the West don't know anything about Korean history, a lot of Korean people don't know anything about Black American history, except for that iced tea is on whatever it is, Criminal Minds. I don't know what those shows are. Um, but a lot of Korean people are really not familiar with Black history. And one of the things that Black Lives Matter here in Korea is doing is we've, uh, we're really working hard to educate Korean people 
about black about actual black history, not what they've learned from white people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so for example, we've got our website, BlackLivesMatterKorea.com. We've got a, we've done a lot of interviews and a lot of panels and a lot of forums to just really educate people. A lot of us are teachers. One of the main ways that uh, that English speaking foreigners come here as as is as English teachers. So a lot of us are trying to are kind of workshopping and talking about different ways to integrate uh, positive portrayals of blackness, age appropriate positive portrayals of blackness and black history and black culture into our English lessons. Because one of the interesting things that happens here is that you'll see really frankly, really awful racist portrayals of black people, darker skinned people, African people in textbooks, in English textbooks, right? So you'll have things like, there was one recently where uh, these, these things get shared around a lot, right? So there was one recently where there was a picture of, you know, a, a smiling blonde blue eyed woman in Russia with the appropriate Russian landmark. There was a picture of a, a, a what is it, a palace guard in the UK with, you know, the appropriate British landmark. And then for Africa, the pyramids were located in South Africa for some reason. And there was like a starving, like, caricature of a boy Mm. with like the stereotypical, like triangle nose and giant pink lips and dark skin and like picky hair. Uh, But that was an, and that was in a nationally published textbook here in an English textbook. How recent was that? So this was some, uh, this was this would have been last year. Last maybe, year, my yeah, last goodness. year, maybe two years ago. Yeah, you still oh, see it no. to the point where I've spoken to some. Yeah, I know it's awful, isn't it? I've spoken to some elementary school teachers, and even when I, because when I first came here, I'm a professor now, and I was I have been for most of the time here. But I originally came here as an elementary school teacher because I wanted to see if I liked the culture enough to stay here for a long time. So I came just as an elementary school teacher to scope things out. And when I first came here, and also this still happens when I speak to elementary school teacher friends, you'll walk in the classroom and the kids will point and laugh because mm. they're just not used to seeing anybody who looks like you. And every portrayal they have seen of somebody who looks like us is negative mm-hmm. or strange or poor, right? I had a kid who was very, and that's what's interesting to me is that there are dark skinned Koreans, right? But they are often treated quite badly Mm -hmm. as well. Colorism is also a thing within Korean society. I had a very dark skinned kid with curly hair, but he was 100% Korean. He he was just frustrated because everybody was always asking him if he was mixed race or whatever. And he he would come in the class and all the other kids would pick on him and call him the king of Africa. and i mean i'm his teacher and i'm like okay come on and he's you know crying i'm not the king of africa and i'm like okay (laughs) enough is enough so they're so i'm like okay you guys stop it leave him alone and they're like but teacher he is the king of africa and i said great that means he's my friend kings are rich and i showed them some pictures of like some of the beautiful things in africa and you could kind of see it click in their minds but the problem with that is that i am only one person Maybe the, these, these students might meet a, one more Black person in their entire academic career and their, in their entire experience in Korea, but everything else they get mm-hmm. <laughs> is coming from a different perspective. So when I, when I hear about instances like that, mm-hmm. I feel like just the person I am is I try to see it from a lens of like, okay, are they, is that mm-hmm. actually racist or is it coming from a place of just naivety and ignorance? So how do you differentiate that? You know, I don't necessarily know that the two are mutually exclusive. I think racism often comes from naivety and ignorance expressed in a in a um, in an aggressive, violent, minimizing, systematically 
oppressive way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's often where it comes from. So I don't think the two are mutually exclusive to begin with. I don't always think that ignorance is a pass for racism. Um, and I do know that, and you know, I've said already that a lot of the perceptions that the negative perceptions that Koreans have of black people in Korea or anywhere comes from a comes from ignorance and that's not always malignant it's not always coming from a, an angry aggressive place it, but it isn't coming from an angry aggressive place in the u.s either mm -hmm. it's coming from a place of power it's coming from a place of um wanting to maintain a certain level and there is definitely anti-blackness is global and there is definitely a hierarchy in the minds of many people in many countries but to be black is to automatically be lower than everybody else and that comes from ignorance in korea but that doesn't excuse race the racist behavior that often arises from that ignorance i've met ignorant people here who weren't racist they were ignorant but the way that they handled their ignorance was very not racist they asked genuine questions. They still engaged. They expressed that they were nervous or unsure, but they were ignorant, but not racist. I've also met ignorant people here who are racist. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> those funny. Are different That's things. exactly the yeah. point mm -hmm. I wanted to hear more oh. about. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. one of the things that we've talked about on this podcast and just in general is one, one issue with ignorance is an unwillingness to learn and to change. And that's really when those behaviors start to reinforce racist structures. And so mm -hmm. I would be interested to hear the differences between ignorant people in Korea to black people in their culture is, mm -hmm. are they open to it? Like, let's say they, they make a faux pas, and, like just touch your hair and they're like, Oh, I want to touch your hair. <laughs> and, but mm -hmm. then you check them and you're like, no, I'm, I'm sorry. That's not really appropriate. And would they be defensive mm -hmm. and would they be kind of, about it or would they be open-minded mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm curious because mm. uh, you already went into it a little bit but I think that Korean culture in general is much more passive than U.S. culture generally and and mm -hmm. I would feel that in in passing let's say you're a black woman walking walking in the streets of Korea mm -hmm. I feel a lot of people would look at you a couple seconds longer but they wouldn't actually do anything they'd be like huh interesting and then just kind of <laughs> go on with their day. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Bearing in mind that I haven't actually lived in the U.S. for almost 15 years, so American culture is definitely less passive, but I'm not 100% familiar with the way it works in person anymore. Mm. And the cultures that I've been living in are, I guess they would be considered more passive. One of the things I like about Korea is that even if somebody is ignorant, or racist, it's almost never going to be expressed in a violent way. Mm. So, I mean, there's racist in America, there's racists here, but uh, no racist in Korea is going to shoot me, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's that. Um, so, but that said, I think, I think a lot of people call Korean culture passive. And I think part of that is because of the perception from things like K-drama, K-pop, and Korean immigrants who often are just trying to keep their heads down and assimilate and survive mm. in foreign countries. Those, the, all three of those populations are really different than the average Korean walking around on the street in Korea because here, Koreans are in power. It, this is Korea. Koreans run Korea. So people are not that passive or that shy in Korea. That's a good point. <laughs> what yeah. I mean by that, 
Yeah. So what I mean by that is that people don't hesitate to walk up to me on the subway and touch my skin or ask me strange, strange questions <laughs> or uh, like I get my hair touched all the time. I actually cut my hair when I first came here because I was sick of looking around on the subway and finding old lady hands in it because you I, apparently you can smack the shit out of old ladies in Korea. I didn't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you know, there's there's uh, so people are very. Um, and it's weird because I think a lot of people, when they do that, they mean it in a friendly way. Mm, yeah. It doesn't come across that way. It's very much because when you try to touch back, they freak out and then they realize they're being weird and they stop. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but I think a lot of people are just fascinated, mesmerized. It comes across in a friendly way. They think it comes across in a friendly way and it doesn't. Um, I... I think that there are, I think that different cultures express aggression in different ways. And there have been times when people have done very, things that are very aggressive by Korean standards um, that maybe people wouldn't do in the States, but because of the context, those things were meant to be aggressive, meant to be hurtful, meant to be racist, and they were. Can you give me an example? Um, hmm. Oh, there's a few. Feel free and give several. Yeah, well, I'm trying to think. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a good one that's also brief. Uh, just little things like um, being harassed for speaking English in public places. Oh, that happens yeah. all the time. I can relate mm -hmm. to that directly. So, yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> actually, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so sorry to cut off your example, but um, no, go ahead. so mm -hmm. I actually spent a couple summers in Korea when I was in middle school. So this is 2006, mm -hmm. 2007. And I actually mm -hmm. went to school for a couple months in, during those summers uh, to mm -hmm. shadow my cousins who were going to the school at that time. Um, and I can definitely relate to what you were saying earlier about um, the Korean people, at least when they're students or kids, in my experience, are not as passive as you would think. Because um, first of all, I saw a fight break out like every day. I mean, these kids are aggressive. You know, they, they got some built up <laughs> aggression. They just want to beat each other up. That's you know, that's one thing, mm -hmm. you know, we don't really see that too much in American schools. I mean, depending on where you mm -hmm. live. Um, and second, mm -hmm. they knew that I was from America. Um, and mm -hmm. instantly the treatment was different. Um, most of it was in a, in a good way because they thought that I was like very elite because I was a Korean living mm -hmm. in America. So that was an interesting way to see how they would perceive me. But they would ask me things all the time. Like, you know, it's from basic questions like, oh, do you know what Samsung is? Uh, like, how many computers do you have in your home? Like... <laughs> Do you, does your family have a car? <laughs> um, like, do you, do you listen to this, this artist or, you know, this artist or whatever? Um, and yeah, they would just, they would just ask me a lot of things and they would make a lot of comments about how uh, just, just obviously how different I was. And then a lot of times when I was in public was either my brother who was there with me at the time. And then my cousin who lives in Korea at the time and is fluent is in English we'd be out mm -hmm. in the subway and we'd just be like, you know, just talking in English and we would get stares, you know, we, people would stare at us. And I remember this one time I was actually, out with my mom, it was me and my brother out with my mom. We were on the subway and we were like, you know, me and my brother were speaking English to each other. And then the, the, sub, the train stopped and this man who was sitting right next to us, he got up and he was getting out. And then right when he was leaving, he said to my mom in Korean, like, you should raise your kids better, you know? teach them some manners Whoa. don't don't let them be speaking english like that in public and she was like this close of like hopping out and like you know going up to his man like what's your problem but she don't want to leave us in, she don't want to leave us in the train obviously but it's like little experiences mm -hmm. like that where even as a korean american 
in Korea, uh, when, when it's known that you're not, you know, a Korean Korean, uh, there mm. is some different treatment there. And it's very, very obvious. Definitely. I think it all goes back to that us and not you concept. Korea is very much about kind of figuring out who belongs, where you belong in the hierarchy. And so if you belong and, and kind of making sure you stay belonging if you do. And I think as a Korean American, you only belong to a certain extent, right? So there were, people are always asking you questions, trying to figure out, okay, how much does he belong? How much does he think he belongs? Yeah. <laughs> like that kind of thing, right? right. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, um, so what do you think is Korean people's general perception of just Americans um, and maybe not even black Americans, but what, what do they think of mm. Americans in general? That's a good question also. I, so I think this also goes back to the whole concept of Korean people being very enterprising about relationships, kind of where, how can we benefit from you? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if come here, assimilate, fit in, give us what we need and then go back. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the attitude with Americans as well. Americans are seen as, I think there's a real kind of dualistic feeling towards Americans because on the one hand, Americans are seen as heroes from the, the war days. Um, Americans are, you know, we teach English here. We're seen as being rich. Uh, we're seen as being in a way, a lot of Koreans still aspire to go to America. Uh, so it's, there's a lot of aspirational kind of projection that comes along with being an American. But also we're imperialists. The military's here and they're not necessarily great represent they're not necessarily great representations of what Koreans think America is. There's a lot of friction in areas that are near military bases because military personnel in Korea don't get a lot of um, cultural sensitive sensitivity training or even like information about where they are and what's actually going on. It's all very mission focused because this is technically still a country at war. So you'll meet, for example, military personnel who don't actually know what city they live in. They know the base, they know the area around the base. But if you ask them, what state are you in, for example, what province are you in, they have no idea because they're just not aware of what is going on in Korea outside of the military kind of standard. And that causes a lot of friction as well. Um, and you said just Americans in general, but I will say this there. So everybody who sees me here immediately assumes, oh, an African, which doesn't bother me. There's nothing wrong with being African. But what does bother me is how differently people treat me when I say that I'm American, not African. Mm. All of a sudden it goes from, oh, let me help you. Do you have clean water to drink? Do you know how to, uh, wa do you know how to, how to wash? Do you know, it goes from this, like this really wow. basic kind of almost dehumanizing yeah. level to, oh, you're an American. Can you teach my child English? Yeah. Of course not, but <laughs> you know, there's a really, there's a really distinct, um, there's a really distinct difference in the level of treatment that goes back to the whole kind of hierarchy. Where do you belong in the hierarchy? Where do you belong in relation to our group kind of thinking? Uh, whereas, Afri again, anti-blackness is global. To be black is often seen as being lower. And to be black and African is to be seen as the lowest. And I'm not saying that because I believe that, honestly, obviously. But I'm saying that because that is often the global perception. 
So I have, it's funny because there are a lot of exchange students and foreign students here now. Mm -hmm. That's what's keeping Korean universities open for the most part because the birth rate's so low. Schools are closing, universities are closing. A lot of young people are opting out of university entirely because it, they feel like it doesn't get them anywhere. Yeah. So what universities are doing is there's, there's a huge push to bring in students from overseas, especially in the, in the whole uh, Korean pop, Korean drama wave. Yeah. Korea has pop culture cachet. Yeah. So you've got a lot of people coming here um, from various countries. And what's interesting to me is that the people who come here, so a lot of Chinese students come, some African students come, the occasional Europeans come. If a person comes here and they are Chinese or European, they're probably not very well off. But if a person comes here and they're African, they are probably very well off. And I'm speaking in terms of global relativity, not just within that country. But Korean people always see it the other way around. Mm. Oh. <laughs> they automatically assume that Johnny from Norway is richer than Sue from Kenya. Yeah. But Sue's father's a politician and she's very well placed in the world. But I remember having a really interesting argument with somebody I was dating when I first got here, where he was very much like, I don't know if my parents will ever accept you. And I was like, my parents aren't going to accept you. Do you realize, <laughs> right? Do you realize I went to two better universities than you? <laughs> right? And we have like stuff and you don't. <laughs> like, your parents are farmers, man. <laughs> right? So, but it just, that, that never occurred to him, right? So it's that, you know, there's this really interesting sort of hierarchy thing going on. I would say the uh, the American perspective on Koreans, we're, we're definitely raising or rising in the hierarchy, I would say, with all this K-pop mm -hmm. and K-drama. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with, with I think that the newer generations, like Generation Z, even millennials, starting with millennials, are mm -hmm. pushing back a lot against these cultural norms that have been established in America specifically. And like for mm -hmm. one example would be toxic masculinity. And regardless of whatever you believe about that, it's that Koreans and I guess Asians in general have a much radically different perception of masculinity. Like you'll have skinny Asian dudes with like, with, pink hair getting all the ladies like in Korea you know for example I mean I don't know after after some of this conversation I've realized some of my perspective is color, colored by the media just like what we're talking about <laughs> but um it, it's interesting just how all these different cultures are perceived depending on their context and and I would be really interested to hear how all of this activism with Black Lives Matter and, and anything else really is perceived in Korea because in the in America that's like the thing and we've we've talked about this many times is that it's very trendy it's it's all predominantly I mean Generation Z is all for it and and millennials too mm -hmm. they're they're kind of starting that and pushing away from this culture of passivity and pushing towards social change and movements and things like that. And mm -hmm. you operate Black Lives Matter in Korea, which I didn't even realize was a thing. So, mm -hmm. so you were mentioning before, people are trying to distinguish, are you in or are you out? Are you, mm -hmm. and, and how, is, how is that perceived there? How has it been trying to do Black Lives Matter in Korea? It's been actually quite good in some ways. It's definitely raising awareness. I guess to give you a little bit of background, so the Black community in Korea is not large, but it is relatively tight-knit and well-networked, well-connected. 
uh, there's been a fairly large group of Black ex expats that has been kind of operating and networking for some time together here. Uh, some of us, a lot of us are long timers. So we've been here more than five or six years. So we're kind of considered lifers at this point. Um, and so, so the creation of Black Lives Matter Korea essentially rose organically out of that group. However, uh, there, there has been a lot of, of involvement from non-Black people here. There's been a lot of involvement from Korean people, many of whom have some experience of living in other countries and perhaps experiencing anti-Asian racism for the first time. Mm. Mm. That's all, that's, in my experience, that's a huge game changer for somebody's perspective. I remember having students who would come and speak to me and tell me of all of their dreams of going to Australia or the UK or the US and studying for a semester. And then they'd come back after that semester and they'd come to my office and say, I am so sorry. I did not understand racism until I went to mm. XYZ country, right? So a lot of the Korean people, not all, but some of the Korean people who are involved have overseas experience and really understand on a more personal level because of that. Um, there's a huge translation team that is working very hard to translate a lot of the materials and the events and um, just a lot of the things that are done by Black Lives Matter Korea into Korean, which is vital. And also because again, a lot of us involved are educators and we, we want part of our, our mission is to really educate people here because they, here's the thing, Black Lives Matter, like you said, in the US right now, it's the thing. Mm -hmm. Here, it was briefly the thing, but there's two issues kind of working against it. One is that Korea, Korea moves from trend to trend far more quickly mm. than uh, the US, I think. People are always on their phones. People are always looking for the next trend, the next thing to do. There's not a long shelf life for trendy things, especially trendy social movements. Mm. Um, and the other thing is that this isn't America and black people are a rarity here. You don't see us around very often. You, David, you said you'd been here many times and you'd never seen a black person, but you yeah. know, I've been here the whole time you were here. So, <laughs> yeah. so you know, um, there's, uh, there's also that issue is that it's, um, America's not the center of the world and there's not enough black people here for there to be a constant awareness of blackness in Korea. So, and Korea has its own social issues. There's a lot of other things going on in Korea, both uh, ethnically as well as within class divisions and within age divisions. Korea's got a lot of social issues of its own. So with, so those two things are working against the idea of Black Lives Matter being a continued trend here, but that works both in our favor and against us. So maybe not as many people are talking about Black Lives Matter now. Sure. You don't see as much going on under the hashtag on social media. Uh, you don't see as much turnout at the events from Korean people, but you see, you're starting to see more involvement from other expats, expats from other communities, um, South Africans, for example, um, other ethnic groups, other social groups who live here and are also dealing with discrimination in certain ways. And the Korean people who are getting involved are really learning a lot about Black culture, Black history, Black issues from Black people, which is one of the things that is, that is constantly an issue here, is that many people get their information about Blackness from people who are not Black, and that is liberally salted with racism. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting to see how that's working. So what is, how do you view 
kind of the recent events that's been going on in the U.S. Um, I know you haven't lived mm. in the U.S. for, you said, almost 15 mm. years. Yeah. Um, and a lot has changed in those 15 years. And I mean, mm-hmm. even in these past, you know, eight months in 2020, mm-hmm. it's been, it's mm-hmm. been kind of crazy. So how do you view things um, as someone who hasn't lived in the U.S. for quite some time? Right. Well, I still visit a lot and all of my family are in, and a lot of my friends are still in the U.S. So I keep abreast of, of what's going on mm-hmm. pretty well, I think. And, I, you know, I don't live in the U.S. I don't necessarily miss the country, but I do miss my culture a lot. And I try to and stay as connected as possible. Um, so there's that. But uh, so I was in the, in the U.S. this time last year. And I remember thinking, wow, it feels different here. <laughs> something something is different something is changing in the water i don't know what this is about but it's different might be trump (laughs) probably (laughs) to be honest yeah and i mean i've been back twice since trump was elected and both times i was like this is this is Mm -hmm. this is not okay this is different this is changing in ways i don't necessarily love uh so there was that but also um i i don't know these last eight months have been real surreal for me because I don't live in the U.S. And living outside of the U.S. and hearing about bad things happen in the U.S. is already pretty surreal because you're not there in real time. You don't know how it feels. There's, a, there's definitely something to be said about living an experience in another country. Um, I might understand things intellectually, but the things that I get through the lens of speaking to family, of looking at social media, of reading the news are all going to be largely negative. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a certain spin on it because I know a certain sort of person in the U S right. Mm -hmm. But these past eight months, I've just been, I feel like I should watch the the daily news with popcorn. Like it's a horror (laughs) movie. (laughs) Like it just, it gets worse and worse and weirder and weirder. And I don't, think I understand at all. I don't, I think for me living outside of the U.S. and living in a country that so many American people think is still in some ways like a poor backwater kind of place, everywhere I've lived that's not the U.S. has been in many ways more developed than the U.S., Mm. right? (laughs) So it's, you know, people in in America really do seem to think America is the best country, but we seem to be doing so many things so badly not only the issue of racial justice Mm -hmm. but the issue of public health (laughs) Mm -hmm. i mean there's just so many things we do badly and it's weird to watch and with all of this racial stuff happening now um and it feels weird to even say that because i really don't know what to call it all of this racial stuff i I sound like a 60 year old white lady named maggie there's all of this racial (laughs) stuff i don't know (laughs) there's just no real title for this right right. (laughs) (laughs) but um even with everything going on now in regards to race and watching how our immediate response to, or at least my perception of the immediate response to the aftermath of George Floyd and all of the other things going on, the the death of Breonna Taylor, all of the different uh, murders essentially that have precipitated this, it feels like the immediate mainstream American response uh, was violence. Mm. So there were peaceful protests that were turned into riots by some accounts, if you listen to some accounts by outside agitators. So our immediate response was violence. And of course, then, you know, there's all of the threats of violence and actual perpetuated violence from the, from the powers that be from the federal government. So our immediate response was violence. And then um, 
consumerism. So I run a bookstore, an online bookstore and a book portal that decenters whiteness, which you mentioned at the beginning mm-hmm. of the, the podcast. Mm-hmm. And one thing that really annoyed me was seeing that there are a million anti-racist book lists. And on the top of all of these anti-racist book lists is a book called White Fragility by, by a lady named Robin D'Angelo, who I'm sure is a very nice person. But I, I think it's weird how our response was to tell each other to buy stuff. <laughs> that's America. <laughs> that was, that's made by white people in order to help us be less racist. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of criticism for that. The Because at first... I think white fragility, at least from my perspective, was praised almost like unanimously as, oh, you need to Mm -hmm. read this in order to learn. And then later on, I started to see criticism about it. And I I don't Mm -hmm. fully understand the criticism because it was a little bit complex. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think that what you were saying is right. I mean, try to try to learn from people experiencing it. Yeah. And I mean, and I get the idea of, okay, we want to educate people and, you know, historically white people listen to other white people. Fine. Right. That's part of that whole in-group behavior when it comes to communities. But, (laughs) right. I still think it's interesting that our response was violence. Well, the, um, the mainstream American response, this is not the response of most of the black people I know, let's be real. Um, But uh, the mainstream American response was let's buy stuff and let's burn things. (laughs) I mean, that says a lot about our culture. <laughs> so I have a question for you. So mm-hmm. we've we've had discussions about what it means to be an ally and how to effectively do it. And mm-hmm. and it's interesting to me because I would assume that woman's intention was good. She wanted to use her platform in order to help help the movement in whatever way that she saw fit. So do you think that that was like, do you think that there could have been a better way for her to do that? Or is it more so controversial? <laughs> or or is it more yeah. so just our our like community? Mm-hmm. Like maybe our community should have focused more on black voices or I don't know. I would love to hear your controversial point. I, well, I was gonna say controversially, I think she shouldn't have done it. She should have highlighted black voices. Mm. But I understand why she did it because you know what? People gotta eat. I get it, a check is a check, (laughs) but, um, and also because a lot of white academics and white thinkers do not listen to black people. They do not listen to Asian people. They do not listen to Arab people. They listen to white people talk about us. I understand that. Um, But if she, I think if she was really down for the cause, number one, she would have picked a different name for her concept because I personally, and this is just my personal feelings. This is not me representing Black Lives Matter Korea at all, but my personal feelings that the concept of white fragility reinforces the idea that whiteness is this precious tender thing to be protected at all costs. And ultimately whiteness is fragile and can break and everybody else is, in da- is, you know, is, is dangerous because we might break it. I hate the name of that concept. Mm. I hate white fragility. I try not to use the word. I understand why people use it and I understand why it is such a socially salient concept, but I don't love the way it was constructed. And I think that if you listen to black thinkers, we never would have had that concept called that. What are your thoughts on white supremacy and white, uh, what's the other one? White privilege. White supremacy and white privilege. Again, I think these are really useful concepts. Um, I think the problem with all of these concepts is that they're, and this is the problem with monetizing anti-racism and with, um, what's the word, uh, making the concept of anti-racism a trend or a media 
kind of a media wave, is that these concepts are used so much and often so inaccurately. I mean, everybody's a sociologist on the internet now, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so these concepts are used so much and often so inaccurately, and they're often weaponized uh, to, as a way to kind of leverage the racial hurts that we have felt against white people. It's, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of a satisfaction sometimes in using a term like white privilege, white supremacy against a white person who's arguing, with, who's arguing your humanity with you. You can just shut it down. Well, that's your privilege speaking. Mm -hmm. That's white supremacy speaking. That's your anti-blackness speaking. There's, there's something great about having terms that you can use to effectively shut that down. But the problem is, if the people you're speaking to don't understand those terms or are so arrogant and stubborn and intellectually unaccepting that they don't hear those terms for what they are and they get twisted by certain media outlets to mean something completely different, it's not helpful anymore. Mm. So I think white privilege has a very valid meaning. I think white supremacy has a very valid meaning and is a very real term and a very real thing. But I also think that the people who need to hear those concepts and understand them for what they are and do the work to dismantle them often don't hear that. So how would you define those two terms? Um, white, white. <laughs> Y'all are really white. making me work for this. Right. Huh? Yeah. It just, you know, <laughs> you know, on social media, it's like, mm -hmm. I, I hear things or I read comments and it's like, Mm -hmm. there'll be a post about white privilege and then a bunch of you know white people in the mm -hmm. comments they'd be like hmm, mm -hmm. you know i don't remember getting my white privilege check in the mail like what is you oh, know like God. i don't i don't <laughs> like this is you okay. know and it's mm -hmm. like and i don't mm -hmm. i don't know if they're trolling half the time but regardless mm -hmm. they're still posting these things and then it has you know it, it is just social media but it's mm -hmm. not just social media you know it does paint mm -hmm. the very powerful picture mm -hmm. i guess about uh, you know your race or your skin mm -hmm. color and sure it yeah. just bothers me so it's like what, yeah so how would you define white supremacy and white privilege okay well i think you can define them both by an example this podcast is supposed to be about the black experience and black lives matter in korea and i'm talking to two people of korean descent but somehow our conversation has evolved to include white people <laughs> how often do white people's conversations evolve to include us organically mm -hmm. <laughs> really this is not when it's not the stated topic now i'm sure there's probably some white person listening now who's like no 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 but see you're talking about racism and ra okay fine let me break it down so white privilege does not say that you get more things because you're well actually it does kind of say you get more things because you're white it doesn't say that your life is is easier just because you're white it says that your life is not harder just because you're white the fact that you're white never makes your life more difficult right it's if you have if you're poor you're poor if you have struggles you have struggles but you are not having any of those things because you are white it is not a systematic it's not a systematically reinforced struggle so that's white privilege in a nutshell. Uh, white supremacy in a nutshell is just an outgrowth of the same thing. It's the idea that, do you know something? I'll put it to you this way. I went to Indonesia a couple of years ago. I'm in Bali, wandering around, living my best life, enjoying myself. And I quickly learned to stay away from the city center in uh, Ubud because every time I went to the city center, I would hear a white woman arguing with a police officer in another country, right? <laughs> Just for arguing. what? Why? Right? 
Well, I mean, the first time I heard it, it was something along the lines of, no, you don't understand. I don't feel protected. And your job as a police, no, just for context, the police in, in, in Indonesia and in Bali in particular are quite corrupt. You don't really talk to them unless you want to pay a bribe. And every time I went into the city center, I would hear a white person, usually a white woman, complaining about how she didn't feel protected by the police and how she needed him to do something and shouldn't, and he wasn't doing it. And, you know, it was just this really weird situation. I, I literally saw the same police officer maybe three or four times being harassed by different white people who were just not feeling safe in that moment and thought he should do something about it because it's Indonesia and people have different rules for road traffic and safety and things like that. Um, that's a very good example, I think, of white supremacy. The fact that many white people think, and there are other types of supremacy and other shades of privilege, but the fact that many white people from many countries think that they can go anywhere and impart their ideals and their standards for what is good, what is safe, what is beautiful, what is correct, what is intelligent, on wherever they are. Mm, that's interesting because I mm -hmm. One of the common arguments that I've heard in regards to white supremacy is that mm -hmm. white supremacy does not exist if China supremacy does not exist in China or Korean supremacy in Korea or something like that. But I, it's interesting because mm -hmm. you're phrasing it differently. You're saying it's not necessarily mm -hmm. in, in relation to the proportions of the demographic within a country. It's just mm -hmm. the fact that white people, again, generally, are... Mm -hmm they they kind of give off this sense of supremacy wherever they mm. go they are the top dog am i understanding that correctly precisely exactly because numerically demographically white people are a global minority but i don't see but i okay it's not that i don't see white people approximating for example physical features of black women or asian women but they get they get the credit for it mm. right uh, look at, okay, this is an old hacky, ex hacky example, but it's still very true. Look at Kim Kardashian, right? There are black women with features that Kim Kardashian is paid to get, but they, they don't get the credit for that. When we look like Kim Kardashian, we are somehow seen as trashy and hypersexualized. And Kim Kardashian is trashy and hypersexualized, but she's also rich, <laughs> okay? <laughs> right, where we don't get those same kinds of privileges. Um, there's just, I mean... I can't necessarily speak on the Chinese experience because I've never been there. And I, even though I know a lot of Chinese people, I don't know a lot about Chinese cultures. But I do know that there's an issue in China, for example, where uh, a lot of times Chinese companies will just hire a white person who isn't qualified at all just to make their company look better, just to, for, for media ops, for photo ops. Does that happen in Norway? Does that happen in the U.S.? <laughs> right? That's white supremacy. The fact that white people are, have, have, are somehow seen as a treasure wherever they go, or somehow seen as being higher or better or richer or more beautiful wherever they go. Whereas here I am, highly qualified, well, not to toot my own horn. Just toot highly it. Qualified. Just toot it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> honk, highly honk. qualified, intelligent, from a good family. And I come to a place like Korea and some dude who is the child of who, who basically just got money yesterday and went to school a little bit is in my face saying, my parents might not accept you because you are poor and black, when really it's the opposite, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? That's white supremacy. White women don't get asked those questions. White, white women don't get challenged with that, for example. Nobody assumes white people are poor, even though many of them are. Mm -hmm. And even in, um, even in Asian culture, 
light skin is seen as more um, more mm-hmm. elite, and it's historically mm-hmm. been that way. Um, mm-hmm. And in Korean culture, um, you see this a lot with Korean women, um, mm-hmm. like older Korean women. Mm-hmm. They'll go outside, but they'll cover like every inch of their body with with some kind of cloth, so they make sure that they're not getting tan. Because mm-hmm. uh, especially for older generation, that idea is still so powerful that they need to be as light skinned as possible. And if you're mm-hmm. dark skinned, then you're seen as poor. And th- I understand that there is some historical context to that because you know back in the day, you're poor, you're out in the fields, or you're tan, so it was actually a representation of your class. Whereas if you're rich, you're mm-hmm. in, in the palace, you know, in the shade, and you're mm-hmm. light skinned. Uh, but mm-hmm. but even then, it's just the whole idea of lighter is better. Um, that yeah. stretches even into Asian cultures. I just always mm-hmm. found that kind of uh, interesting, totally. but a little disturbing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where that whole thing about the historical precedence breaks down is in the fact that now you still see ads in Korea that says that, that explicitly ask for white teachers because white somehow, because they want beautiful teachers who won't scare the children. So not beautiful white teachers, just white teachers, because whiteness is seen as by default as being beautiful, not a pale skinned Korean woman, but an actual white woman from Europe or a white woman of European descent is some is automatically seen as more beautiful than every other woman. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, but colorism is a thing. But where it where the where the historical cultural underpinnings of cult of colorism break down for me is where it turns into a if I, I would be more accepting of colorism if the preference for colorism extended to let to naturally light skin members of that race only right but when you suddenly say well even a light-skinned korean woman isn't good enough what we want is an actual white woman that's where it becomes white supremacy for me hmm. There's a really good book about this that was just published recently, uh, Whiter, edited by Nikki Kana. I may be saying her name wrong. I am sorry if I am. But what she did was she went and collected a series of essays from Asian American women about colorism and their experience of colorism. So she's got a very wide variety of Asian American experiences. Uh, She's got women from, from many different, whose ethnic origins are from many different countries. She has mixed race Asian women who are perhaps half black or half white as well, share their takes. But it unpacks a lot of the thinking behind this because there's this, again, it's that in-group, out-group thinking. Mm -hmm. Really interesting how this works because if you are, because the, if you're in the out-group, but you're seen as part of the out-group, but at a higher level than the in-group, you're still going to face less challenges. And this, I think, is where a lot of people argue against the idea of white privilege or white supremacy. They're like, well, I'm still not accepted by, yes, you might not be accepted, but you're still seen as though you're better than the group that you're not accepted by. Mm, so that, that is why they might not be accepted yet, because oftentimes mm-hmm. I know when, it, when people get you know, tribal, um, Mm-hmm. It's sometimes it's sometimes it's because they think the person who's on the outside is less than them, but it's also an intimidation factor where if they think that they're better, then they don't feel mm-hmm. like they, you know, that person should belong in their group quite yet. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Uh, may, maybe. Uh, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is, so you have groups, but groups don't exist all on the same plane. Mm-hmm. They exist relative to each other. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people who, who uh, argue against white supremacy, especially here in Korea, you get a lot of white expats who are like, well, white privilege doesn't exist in Korea. White supremacy isn't a thing in Korea because I still get treated like I'm a foreigner and I'm not accepted. 
okay. But the thing is, even though you're not accepted, when you put me and you in the same room, if the group of, if the Korean group is here in the center, you are seen as above it and I am seen as below it. Hmm. And that's where white supremacy comes in. That's okay. where white privilege comes in. So we're still seen as being outside of the group, but your group is seen as being better than mine, even if that is not actually the objective case. And I'm not saying my group is better than anybody's group. I don't even know what my group is anymore. I haven't <laughs> been in America for a million years. But my point is <laughs> that there is a, there's an imbalance in the perception of white people and black people abroad. There's a reason why, historically, immigrant groups who come to America do not try and assimilate with black Americans. They try to assimilate with white Americans. They try to become a part of whiteness, not a part of blackness. It's because it's being white is seen as being better. From a foreigner standpoint, I feel like the perception mm -hmm. of black people in America might still be that you mm -hmm. don't automatically associate black people as being American. And the, the image right. is still, if you're American, it's like that, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. um, and then your perception of black people, again, might be painted in a very different light. And you might just see them as like dangerous or... You know, mm -hmm. again, not the typical American qualities mm -hmm. that you might see in a white person. That's kind of how I think of it. Which that's, again, where white supremacy comes in. Black people help build America, but we're not seen as fully American. Mm -hmm. We're seen as something that serves America rather as an actual essential part of Americanness. And we mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of that same discrimination with Asian American history as well. I mean, the people who built mm -hmm. all the railroads and the, and the highways in America are, were Chinese immigrants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the Asian immigrants who came here and built the country much like the slaves did, the black slaves mm -hmm. did back in the day. And, um, and now Asians are painted with like that model minority uh, picture, right. mm -hmm. which is great and all because we don't, you know, the stereotypes that we're painted with is much different and much less harmful than what black people mm -hmm. are painted with the stereotypes. Mm -hmm. But it still feeds into that mentality of you, you know, Asian Americans, being the minor, minor, model minority, you guys are here to serve us and you guys, you know, you guys are obedient and you guys won't act mm -hmm. out of line. And therefore mm -hmm. your role in our American society, our white American society is still very fixated. And it's very, very mm -hmm. difficult for, I feel like Asian Americans to break out of that. But I do- I agree. And I, I do see a lot of that changing with, um, with our generation and also the generation coming up, they're starting to break that mold. Mm, oh, definitely. Yeah, because I think, well, in America, success is indelibly tied to whiteness. The easiest route to success, whether or not you are white, is to behave like a middle class white person, mm. to, to adopt the values and the behavior of a middle class white person. That's what success is. That's the American dream. Some people are closer to it than others, and some people are able to get to it easier than others. The difference is Black Americans have well, just by virtue of the fact that we don't really assimilate physically to begin with, and then culturally also, um, we've always been so close to white people that we often don't want to assimilate to white culture. We don't see it as something to aspire to. That might be a little too conscious. That might be a little too spicy. I don't know if we want to edit that out. But, <laughs> no, but Koreans, I mean, we, Koreans I, I think love we, spicy. Yeah. I hope so. Okay. Right. But I mean, I hope I, I basically... I think that historically, I just was, I was, I've been reading this book about um, class divisions in Black America, right? And how the way that class has worked. And there's a really interesting part of this book that talks about how, even though um, colorism plays into classism within Black American culture, 
there was definitely a perception that if a black person was light-skinned and rich and uh, socially mobile and educated enough to be considered a high-class black American, they still wouldn't pass because it was better to be a high-class black American than a low-class white American which is what you would be if you passed and tried to go into the, into white society with no connections. Mm. So I think that kind of shows that there's a, there's a definitely a, a something in black American culture that does not necessarily want to assimilate into white American culture at large. Yeah. The funny thing with the whole model minority concept is mm-hmm. at least the way that I see it, it's, mm-hmm. it's like David said, I think that it's used a lot to continue the subjugation of black people and keep them down and look at, look at Asians, you know, just be like Asians. Like, but mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I related a lot to, to what you said. I feel as if Asians kind of came into this country and wanted to assimilate they they willingly mm-hmm. gave up a lot of their, their culture in order to in order to pass as white per se and mm-hmm. meanwhile black people were like no like we're not gonna mm-hmm. do that like this is who mm-hmm. we are we're gonna be firm in our culture and mm-hmm. funnily enough after centuries and centuries and, and maybe even earlier than that i mean i'm sure that black culture has been stolen and in in a lot of different ways before but now it's so blatantly obvious like with hip-hop and black culture and and it's just at the epicenter of everything and and it's just incredible that it shows that if you stay true to yourself and who you are and develop your own culture it'll just it'll it'll resonate universally with people and and i think that asians are finally starting to kind of pick up on that and mm-hmm. being proud of our pho and our ramen and mm-hmm. taking over the K-pop fusion and, and the burgers <laughs> and all that stuff. So right. Mm-hmm. Very, very nice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because that is one thing Korea has done really well. It stayed true to itself. And now look at K-pop, look at Hallyu, look at how Korean culture is kind of becoming this really cool thing. And people who don't know anything at all about Korea, who still think it's a part of China, are like, wow, Korea is so cool. I love K-pop. So it's interesting to see how that happens. I do want to say one thing about the model minority myth. I think there's something interesting that I think a lot of Asian, Asian Americans miss about the model minority myth is that it screws you over doubly because the expectations of you are very high, but it, it also normalizes racism against you. Mm. Please elaborate. So what it does... So, Okay, so what the model minority myth does, I'll give you an example. Um, So years ago now, I was in Japan, and I was minding my business. But you know how sometimes you go traveling somewhere and you see the same people who are also traveling doing a lot of the same things because you, you know, you looked at the same webpage or something. So you kind of see the same people around town and like, you're not from here, neither am I. Okay. But you don't know them. So you don't really speak to them. You know, you just see them. And I was in was in uh, Osaka and I saw the same middle-aged white couple literally everywhere I went. They were staying in the hostel, the hotel next door to the hostel I was staying in. It seemed like every time I went out for dinner, we had the same like meal schedule. I saw them everywhere. And every time I saw them, they were loudly speaking in English about how much better the Asians are than the Blacks, (laughs) right? In Japan, right? The first time I noticed them, I heard this woman saying, you see, it's so different here. It's so different here because the Asians, they just put their head down, their heads down and do the hard work. And, you know, it's different. They don't complain. They just do the hard work and they don't complain and it's okay. 
And I just remember thinking, but wait, wait, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You realize this is a whole country. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) And like there's there's a whole other experience. These are not the same people. These are literally not the same people with the same culture as the Asian people you know in America. Right? But Mm -hmm. you feel like it's totally okay to port the experience over. Right. Because Japan has fancy has has fancy gates and and old architecture. But there are Asian Americans who live in poverty in America. There are Asian Americans who are discriminated against. Asian-Americans have the highest median household income in America, but they also tend to live in multi-generational households, which negates the effect of that that high median income. Interesting. Um, Yeah, there's there's a certain amount of media racism that is normalized against Asians. It's totally okay to make anti-Asian comments in the media in a lot of situations. Nobody ever speaks up about it because Asians are doing okay. Mm. They'd put their heads down. They do the hard work. <laughs> yeah, and it's that same. Um, it's that yeah. same mm-hmm. argument mm-hmm. where, when you see, when you see like rich athletes, especially rich black mm-hmm. athletes, speak out. That's mm-hmm. when the whole shut mm-hmm. up and dribble argument comes in, and it's the same mm-hmm. thing that's put on. Uh, when you put it that way, I see it. It's the same thing that's put mm-hmm. on Asian Americans too, where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, like you shouldn't be speaking out so much because uh, y'all got money. Like Asians got money. Mm-hmm. Y'all are going to Harvard. Y'all going to Ivy, Ivy yep. League. What's so mm-hmm. bad? Like, why are you complaining? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, exactly. it's like when LeBron James speaks out, it's like, okay. Then you got, what, what was her name? Like Laura Ingram on Fox News. It's like complaining mm-hmm. about how these athletes are making millions. And that's somehow a mm-hmm. justification for why you can't mm-hmm. speak up. And that, yeah, doesn't, exactly. that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Like money is supposed to, to sew your mouth shut, right? Right. And I mean, there's, there's other levels to it, definitely. I think when we did our little pre-chat, I recommended a book to both of you called uh, Minor Feelings mm-hmm. by Kathy Park Hong. Definitely read that book, guys. It really breaks down a lot of the, the subtleties of racism against Asian Americans and how the model minority myth, among other things, has been used to set minority communities, specifically the Asian and Black communities, against each other, when really the only people who win in that situation are white people. Yeah. And I, I can speak <laughs> Which, just from yeah. experience. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I love black culture. Like I, mm-hmm. I pretty much only listen to hip hop. I love basketball. Mm-hmm. I love sports, you know, anytime I've mm-hmm. met a black person, it's like, they, they're cool. And I think they're cool with me, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. there has never really been, at least, you know, personally speaking, um, mm-hmm. like when I encounter a black person, it's never like met with animosity initially you know it's Mm -hmm. like it's like Mm -hmm. we have like this (laughs) very subtle uh like we know we have like this very subtle connection and it's like you know Mm -hmm. we're cool like we're kind of in this together like we kind of need each other Mm -hmm. you know um Mm -hmm. and I've never really viewed any other minority like that you know most of my Mm -hmm. most of my close friends from high school were either Mm -hmm. Mexican or you know my one of my closest friends was Pakistani and then Mm -hmm. I had a couple black uh, black people on my intramural basketball team which was super helpful mm-hmm. you know but also it was like they were cool too <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I've really never had that um w- that experience where it's like when I encounter people of color it's like mm-hmm. I again this is just me speaking personally when I see other people of mm-hmm. color and other Asians I have this feeling of like we gotta stick together we gotta look out for each other yeah yeah, I think there's, and I think it depends on where you're from too. I'm from the West and there's a huge, there's definitely a huge feeling of uh, kind of inter-ethnic solidarity, mm. inter-minority mm. solidarity mm. for lack of a better word. Uh, but also I think that is 
uh, that is a specific generational thing. You might feel cool with 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 uh, with black people. I feel cool with Asian people, but our parents probably don't feel the same way. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> that's a really, really great. Very right? true. That's yeah. a huge generational thing. Very mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How would you say that translates to Korea? Would you say mm. that there's a generational difference with the perspectives there? There is, but Korea is an interesting place, generationally speaking, anyway. I feel like older Korean people, because they are familiar with soldiers from the Korean War and just have a very different idea of Americans, they still have kind of a savior, kind of that dualistic savior, imperialist complex about Americans, are very cool with Black people. Younger Korean people are very cool with Black people. But there's this whole space in between right? The people who are kind of in that sort of middle power space, the people who haven't retired yet, but are in middle management, mm. who really are still, they're kind of in that sort of the aftermath of the Park Chung-hee years, where they're very much, they are not really sure where they stand uh, in terms of other communities. They're still, their focus is still very much on cementing Korea the way it is for Koreans. Um, and they don't necessarily, and that comes with a certain amount of hostility against everybody, not just black people, but probably more pronounced towards black people. Um, yeah, so it's, it's there's an interesting sort of generational gap there, I guess. Whereas older people seem to be pretty unfazed about black people. Younger people are like, oh, black is cool. I want to get to know black people. Now, bear in mind, I'm not that young myself. So I have a really different experience as well. Um, I'm not necessarily out here in the club dealing with like the, 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 whatever the opposite of a Korea boot is, whatever a Korean <laughs> person who's really into black culture is. I'm not out here dealing with that. I, I kind of, for the young people I see are mostly my students and people I kind of run across randomly, but um, and the old people are people I see in my town and my neighborhood who, you know, are always kind of stopping me on the street, you know, like, hi, how are you? What's, how is life in Africa? And I'm like, I'm not an African. And they're like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but they're friendly. They just, re- that's where that, that real ignorance, but not racist ignorance, just genuine ignorance comes to play. Mm. Um, I find it a lot more inimical when it comes to people who are my age, people who are in their late thirties, early forties, who have the internet and have televisions but still act like everybody else in the world does not exist or exist entirely to hurt them. Mm. That's, that's where it gets strange to me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Were there mostly young people at the BLM protests and the marches? Yes, yes. There were mostly young people involved in the, pro- in the demonstrations. Got to be careful about calling it a protest. It wasn't entirely a protest. Okay, yeah. If you are a foreigner in Korea, you can't really protest. You can demonstrate, quote unquote. Mm. We're not trying to get deported. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, they're demonstrations. <laughs> so yeah, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. So at the demonstrations, uh, so there were mostly young people involved in the demonstrations. Most, uh, well, all of the Korean people who are involved in Black Lives Matter Korea are young, I would say. Uh, but there is definitely some support of uh, from older generations as well. Maybe not very vocal, but it's kind of there. Actually, a student, a former student of mine sent me a picture of his father's Kakao Talk. Kakao Talk is a common chat app in Korea. And he sent me a picture of his father's Kakao Talk profile picture. And it's a Black Lives Matter banner in Korean, <laughs> which I thought was really that's lovely. That's so great. <laughs> you know, yeah. So that support is definitely there in some ways. Um, but as far as people actually showing up for marches, for demonstrations, for, uh, for events, for activism opportunities, that is young people for certain. Mm. So just kind of going off of that, um, 
I mean, where do you see Black Lives Matter going? Because especially mm-hmm. after George Floyd, you saw like videos of BLM support coming from all different countries. I mean, like Middle East, uh, Asia, mm-hmm. like Mexico, you mm-hmm. name it. There was like, now I guess it can be considered a global movement now, or at least yeah. it's attracted global attention. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing we've talked about in the past on this podcast is like, you know, what's next? Where, where does that movement go from here? Mm-hmm. And um, are, do you meet it with optimism or, or skepticism or, you know, yeah, where do you, where do you uh, think it's going? So that's an interesting question. So Black Lives Matter as an a organization is actually already global. So they've got chapters, like official chapters. We're still kind of unofficial, but working towards that, I guess. Um, Black, they have chapters in, uh, let's see, in the US, in the UK. And I want to say maybe, well, let's see. I don't know if the one in New Zealand is official or not, but that brings me to my main point, I guess. Um, oh, sorry, they're also in Canada. Um, but that brings me to my main point, which is the interesting thing. I have to be honest. I really had mixed feelings at first about all of this sort of global, this atmosphere of global protest, because as a black American person who has been down with the cause, maybe not necessarily vocal for Black Lives Matter, the association, the actual physical organization, but definitely for Black Lives Matter, the concept and the reality and the, the, the necessary need for social change um, for since day one, since, since Trayvon Martin's death in, in 2013 and before that, uh, or Trayvon Martin's killer's acquittal in 2013. And of course, before that, uh, my first thought when I saw all of these global protests was, so where have you all been? <laughs> like, what you just noticed <laughs> they've been killing us for years and you just started paying attention thanks way to show up late to the party i hope you at least brought something good to drink right <laughs> like really I, at first i was kind of i was skeptical and suspicious but also at the same time really hopeful like oh people do notice this is a global thing but what it highlights is what i keep saying is that anti-blackness is something global right mm-hmm. anti-blackness is worldwide it is not a, um, it's not isolated to the US. It is probably at its, at, in one of its worst and most violent permutations in the US because America has this strange thing where we promise that, you know, liberty and justice for all and equal rights, and then we don't actually do that. But um, so I think the anti-blackness in the US is maybe one of the most severe permutations relative to what the idea of the US and the government of the US promises but anti-blackness is global. When I was looking through all 8 million anti-black, I was not anti-black, <laughs> gotta be careful there, anti-racist, <laughs> anti-racist book lists, um, I noticed there were quite a few coming out of places like New Zealand and Australia. And I thought, what, anti-blackness in Australia, but what that means there is anti-indigenous because in, in New Zealand, black, the black people are the Maori. Um, so, there's a lot of different variations of this. And what I like about this and why I feel, do feel hopeful is that this is showing that there is a need for global equality in a larger way than, oh, Americans are racist. Because that often comes through, just like there's this kind of stereotype among people who are passing familiar with Korea, oh, all Koreans are racist. Well, 
no, we just live in a white supremacist world and Koreans are enacting their easiest path to power in that world, right? Um, there's also this kind of thing, especially when I was living in the UK where people would be like, oh, America's so racist. And I'm like, you are literally wearing a grass skirt and blackface at a costume party right now, sir. <laughs> Americans are racist, <laughs> right? <laughs> there is racism, there is anti-blackness everywhere. And this whole global movement is highlighting that, that this is a problem everywhere and it needs to stop. We need equality for all people. And this is something that is really, that, that really does give me hope. Mm. That's interesting. That's interesting because one of the points that you brought up before in mm. terms of the Korean context was mm. the people that had direct experience with racism, most notably from traveling overseas and experiencing it mm -hmm. themselves, those were the mm -hmm. people that had more sympathy and subsequently mm -hmm. more passion for these issues. And, mm -hmm. and I just can't help but think that in Korea, for example, it'll be quite mm -hmm. difficult to gain traction more, more than just a fleeting fancy with George Floyd mm -hmm. and, and doing demonstrations for a couple mm -hmm. of months, just because mm -hmm. similar to like what you said with the UK, it's, it's difficult to see the, the little plank splinter and what, what, what's the, I'm failing. Yeah. I'm yeah. failing here. Yeah. The speck in your you eye. You, you, speck in are, your... are you sure you're from yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I don't know. I guess maybe I'm just a natural born pessimist or skeptic or something, but I, I am definitely hopeful in that regard because I, I want that to happen. I want people to understand and recognize that there is real change that needs to happen and we have the power to do it. It's just so difficult to convey that to someone's heart without them really experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the reasons that so many of the people, the Korean people who are sympathetic to issues of Black racism in Korea, one of the reasons they're sympathetic is because they go overseas and they realize that racism is not something that is done because the people who are being oppressed deserve it. And I think that's part of anti-Blackness, where a lot of people justify anti-Blackness by saying, oh, well, those people, they're violent, they're undereducated, they're poor, they don't work hard, they have too many babies, they do this, they do that. And not realizing that, especially in the case of, of America, Asian Americans were excluded from immigrating to, to, um, to the US until the mid 1960s for exactly all those reasons. Mm. The, have you, you guys are aware of the Immigration Exclusion Act and the history of that? Mm -hmm. yep, wrote on the back of the Civil Rights Act, essentially. So, um, Thank your local black people. <laughs> but um, I think that there is definitely part of anti-blackness is the perception that black people have done something to deserve the treatment that we get, the racist treatment that we get. If you look at the way that people talk about African culture, for example, or Caribbean culture, or uh, black American culture, or the way that people look at hip hop and like, yeah, those people are all thugs or the way that people kind of take the fact that black people still have joy in our lives and are still able to create great art and have a great cultural impact globally, worldwide. Take that as a sign that we're not actually that oppressed, right? Shut up and dribble, mm. <laughs> right? Um, I think that when Asians or anybody, when people come from countries when they are the majority and go to countries when they, where they are the minority or are treated badly and realize suddenly, oh, it's not your fault if you're treated racial, if you're treated 
with racism. Mm -hmm. And that makes people, that, I think that's what does it here anyway. I think that's what makes people realize, oh, <laughs> it's not their fault. It wasn't my fault. Mm -hmm. It's not their fault. This is just objectively wrong. I, I have a question. So I think this is a, it could be construed somewhat controversially, but, but it's been kind of itching me and I would love to uh -oh. hear your thoughts on this. So, <laughs> okay. so the things that you mentioned with racism, like people don't deserve it and all that kind of stuff, totally agree there. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I also have, have certain thoughts about how some populations like in America are like specifically with blacks and minorities. And when you live in ghettos, I mean, you're going to be mm -hmm. interacting with drugs, gangs, violence, mm -hmm. things like that. And one of mm -hmm. the reasons why hip hop evolved into what it is now and how it, mm -hmm. how it came in to be that way was because mm -hmm. the people were expressing their own truths. Like that's literally what they were living. And mm -hmm. I remember one, like, beautiful quote. I don't even remember who it was, maybe like Ludacris or I don't, I don't know, somebody, but people were criticizing um, some hip hop artist about, you know, why are you promoting mm -hmm. all of these things? And, mm -hmm. and, but they said, if you want us to say something different then change the environment in which we're living, because all we're mm -hmm. doing is expressing the truths that, that we're a part of. So mm -hmm. I, I guess going back to kind of the point I was trying to make is, mm -hmm. let's say, for example, one of the biggest um, arguments against Black Lives Matter and white supremacy mm -hmm. and all, all this kind of stuff is, what about Black on Black crime? And what about all this stuff? Mm -hmm. And and I think mm -hmm. that even if you assume that any of that stuff is true, and, and I think that that would require a, a huge discussion about, of like Black families not having fathers or Black on Black crime, all, mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. I think that what's a more interesting point to tackle is, okay, even if those things do exist, aren't they just byproducts of black people being subjugated for centuries and not being able to purchase houses and being relegated to, to certain areas and ghettos because of redlining? And, mm -hmm. and those are just natural consequences of more so poverty. I wouldn't even necessarily say it's Oh, that's black culture. It's just that's that's what poor mm -hmm. people do. They want they want the stuff that they can't have. They're frustrated because they they don't have the opportunities that they need to feed their families. They don't have the education mm -hmm. because of the environment they're, that they're living in. And mm -hmm. and I guess I just kind of wanted to get your perspective on that. Well, you know, it's so funny when this this because I've heard that what you've just said that perspective that sort of line of questioning quite a lot. And, you know, you mentioned hip hop music there. Nobody ever tries to use country music to decry the degeneracy of white people. Mm -hmm. And all it is, is <laughs> I drank a whole lot. I have a big truck. I slept with my cousin. Very true. Kill yeah. that black man. Nobody does that, right? <laughs> but it, the minute people are like, oh, well, black culture, look at hip hop. That is all of black culture. Ignoring the fact that there are many different varieties of hip hop. It just happens to be that the most popular iteration of hip hop is the type that glorifies, uh, I guess, what we would call ghettos and drugs and so on and so forth. Um, but that, I think, has more to do with just what American culture is. We are violent. We are consumeristic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, of course, we love anybody's any subculture of america that reflects those values is going to be glorified because that's what everyone in america can relate that's a to, great point right? love that yeah. so that's my first thought mm -hmm. <laughs> my second thought is that um so here's what's interesting again i've been reading all these books about black black culture and class and divisions in black communities and while the uh while there is a much higher rate of poverty 
within black communities and demographically black people uh, are suffering from poverty at much higher rates. That is not our entire experience. I once had to explain to a friend of mine whose family immigrated from the Caribbean, from Trinidad and Tobago when she was a teenager and they moved to a, to essentially a ghetto and her father went to school and did this and did that. And she was complaining to me about how American, it's weird because I, I think a lot of people, because I've lived abroad for so long and because I'm not from what you would call a, well, I don't want to get into that, but um, basically a lot of people speak to me, don't really, a lot of people assume that my background is much different than what it is when they speak to me, long story mm. short. And this woman was telling me about how she didn't understand how her father could come from a Caribbean country and move into the ghetto. And he went to school and was able to, um, you know, make his life better and fix up his house and da, 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 and all of this. And I simply, um, asked her, well, I simply pointed out two things. Number one, her father was able to move from the Caribbean. He moved into a, he was an immigrant. So he moved into a poor neighborhood, which is what all immigrants do. Nobody comes from, uh, nobody who, unless you are a diplomat or a very specific type of immigrant that is becoming more common, but is still pretty rare. You don't move from, uh, you, you know, it's that quote from Morrison Shire. Nobody leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You don't automatically go from a place where you feel like you have to leave your country to have a better economic future and move into the richest neighborhood in that new country. Mm. If you could do that, you wouldn't leave your country, <laughs> right? So if you're an immigrant already, you're at an economic disadvantage. So her father moved into the poor black neighborhood and raised his, his family there to all despise American black people because we're all so poor and degenerate and don't actually work hard. But I thought, number one, your father still lives in the ghetto, quote unquote. Why didn't he leave if we're all so awful? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even then he had such a wonderful education, did so much better for himself. He still didn't leave, right? And number two, you lived in a poor black neighborhood. Poverty is not the only black experience. No community is a monolith, especially in the US. Just like, just like Asian Americans are stereotyped as being wealthy or well-to-do, black Americans are often stereotyped as being poor when that is not the reality for all of us, just like not all Asian Americans are rich. There are Asian American communities that are very poor. Mm -hmm. So many of them darker skinned. <laughs> yeah, many of them darker skinned, but not even that. I mean, if you go to LA Chinatown right now, talk to old people there, mm. right? There's a huge poverty problem among elderly Asian, among elderly Asian Americans whose children were able to get ahead based on the backs of their hard work and frankly forgot about them. Mm. So, you know, no community is a monolith. So kind of using the whole kind of idea of all black people are poor and come from the ghetto ignores the fact that we have a much broader experience than that, but that experience is often only known within communities. Um, American society, aside from being violent and consumeristic is also very reductive. There's um, the whole idea, uh, the woman who wrote Americana, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she is Nigerian. She lived in America for a very long time. She's written several very good novels about what it's like to be a Nigerian abroad. Um, she's also written several very good novels about what it's like to be a Nigerian in Nigeria. Um, and she gave a TED talk about the danger of a single story. And when we reduce entire communities down to a single story, we run the risk of essentially deleting all of the actual problems that there are. The problem with the black community 
is not whether some of us are rich or some of us are poor. It is the problem that, it, the problem is that so many other communities feel like it is okay to look at us as though we have one single story and treat us as though we all are living the worst possible variation of that story. And that people think that that worst possible variation is worth mistreatment in the best scenario and death in the worst. I don't care if George Floyd was a serial killer. The situation he was in, he didn't deserve to be murdered without a trial. <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, Dylan Roof, who was a young white guy, literally shot and killed and murdered a lot of elderly Black people in a church. And nobody shot him on sight. They gave him Burger they walked, King. They gave him, exactly. They gave him Burger King. They walked him out. They treated him like a human being because there was the possibility that whatever story he represented was still somehow redeemable. Mm. Black people don't get that same consideration in any country, not even our own. And if you go to African countries, there is certainly a lot, there's certainly a lot less white supremacy, but it still exists. Mm. I was reading a, a news story the other day about how the face of Kenyan startups is very different to the actual face of Kenya. So there's a lot of startup money being donated by NGOs and nonprofits and uh global organizations, global entrepreneurship organizations to the Kenyan economy. But the people who get that money tend to be white and not from Kenya. They're just moving there because Kenya is a great place to have a startup right now. Whereas there are plenty of entrepreneurs in Kenya who are not eligible for those funds for a variety of ridiculous reasons. They're still starting their startups, they're still working hard, they're still creating their businesses and revitalizing their own economy. But are they getting the recognition? Are they getting this, those, that funding? Are they getting that money? No. There's all this talk right now, for example, about how the Chinese are recolonizing Africa. Your mileage may vary on what is actually happening there. But I still find it interesting that we are pushing this whole, this whole, frankly, yellow peril narrative as far as the Chinese invading Africa, when the top 10 highest grossing companies that are operating out of Africa right now are all owned by Europeans. Hmm. Still. <laughs> right? Again, some stories are treated like they're redeemable, like, they're, like even at their worst, there's some sort of redemption there, as though some stories are treated as though they're, they're worthy of chances to be better, and some stories are not. Yeah, it's, it's the remnants of imperialism from, from history hundreds, mm-hmm. of year, hundreds of years ago, where we think it's, it's so ancient, um, but really, if you just follow the trail back, it's, uh, it's really kind of the same thing that's happening, disguised as something else. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, I agree with you entirely, but it's not even hundreds of years ago. It's not that long ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at some countries in on the African continent, they got their independence yesterday, practically, mm-hmm. in the 70s, the 80s, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. It's that whole, there, there's a lot of things going on there. But again, the issue with Black people is not our community. It is the perception of our community. Mm-hmm. So do you think that that's evolving in a positive way? And do you have, do you have hope that I would, I would call it, you know, white supremacy, global mm-hmm. anti-blackness. Do you think mm-hmm. that we are on track to true equality? And what does that look like? Right. Where do we go from here? Mm, that's a good question. Okay. So as far as true racial equality, oh goodness, who knows? I really do feel as though, unfortunately, part of the human condition is hierarchy, Mm -hmm. inequality, 
I don't want to believe that, but the older I get, the more cynical I get. You know, Don Lee, the Korean, is he Korean American? Asian American writer? Don't want to get that wrong. (laughs) The Asian American writer Don Lee has a great line he wrote in a short story saying, time makes conservatives of us all. I don't think I'll ever really be a conservative, but I do get... I do get more cynical as I get older Mm -hmm. and I don't, as much as I'd like to believe that we are on the path to true equality, I don't know how possible that is for us as human beings in any part of of human history. In no part of human history have we truly had equality. We're just getting closer and closer. I don't know how close we'll eventually get. And I don't know if it'll be in any of our lifetimes, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. But that said, I do think it's getting better. And I do think that organizations like Black Lives Matter, ideologies like Black Lives Matter are definitely at the forefront of that. But then again, Black people always are when it comes to civil rights. So, (laughs) I mean, not to toot our own horn or anything like that, but (laughs) um, yeah, so I think that this is definitely, we're definitely getting better. We're definitely on the right track. We're definitely on a better track. I think that there are a lot of internal conversations that need to be had within communities which is another reason why I kind of have beef with the concept of white fragility being a whole big bestseller. There are some conversations I don't need to be in the room for as a black person. I think that Asian Americans have stuff that they need to work out within themselves. I think that white Americans have things that they need to work out within themselves. I think Koreans have things they need to work out within their own communities as well. I think everybody has internal things to work out within their own communities. I know as a black American that 95% of our struggle up to this point has been internal. We have been trying to work out the issues in our community within ourselves because of our own internalized anti-Blackness feeling. Maybe we did do something to deserve this. Maybe if we were better, maybe if we behaved better, maybe if we elevated our culture in X, Y, Z kinds of ways, maybe if we created better connections to Africa, maybe if we own more businesses. We say all of these things within our community all the time. This is a constant conversation within Black communities. And it's just now beginning to turn away from that and turn to, hold on, stop killing us. <laughs> like really, this isn't our, I mean, and it's, and I mean, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, clearly the civil rights movement was a thing, right? Pan-Africanism was a thing. But my point is there are so many internal com- communications that have happened, that are happening within the black community before it becomes an external movement that everybody partakes in. And I feel like the same thing needs to happen in all communities. Everybody needs to have a reckoning with the internal classism with the internal anti-blackness or anti-asianness or anti-whoeverness within their own communities and that is how we all move forward Hmm. but start by not killing us not being racist towards us that would be nice (laughs) beautifully put i love that well we might need uh I mean, we've covered a lot. So, Mel, we might need a part two, honestly. This This was great. Yeah. You dropped some real dimes. Um, I I feel like I've learned a lot just in the, you know, just within the time we've had here. Um, But, yeah, you've covered a lot. Definitely dropped some some hot takes, um, a lot of dimes. Uh, But just to close, um, what are your closing thoughts? Um, Well, my closing thoughts, I guess. I always like to end things with a call to action. So if you're listening to this, get involved in Black Lives Matter in your local area. You don't necessarily have to go to a protest. You don't have to believe in everything. I know that there's somebody with 
a little bit of liberal arts education who's like, but aren't they Marxists? And yeah, I'm not going to get into that right now. <laughs> Who cares? That's not the point. Um, but <laughs> get involved in communities that are working towards social justice in your local area, whether that's Black Lives Matter or any other organization that is actively working towards and campaigning towards justice and equality for us all, get involved. You don't have to go to a protest. You don't have to make signs. You don't have to to speak out, but you do need to be involved. You need to know what's going on with other people. Because here's the thing, what society does to the member, to the people that it perceives as the lowest, once you get rid of all of us, who are they coming for next, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so get involved now so we don't have to take it that far, <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, yeah, but just get involved. If you're in Korea, definitely look up Black Lives Matter here. We have a website, blacklivesmatterkorea.com. Get involved there. If you are in another part of the world, look at blacklivesmatter.com. Um, read books that are by Black people. Do you have recommendations? <laughs> sure. Uh, look at Kendi X, uh, 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 oh, what is his name? Ibram X. Kendi's. I always get that backwards. Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist is a great book. Actually, I like that book, but I would recommend his book Stamped from the Beginning before that because it actually goes into the history and underpinnings of racism and how anti-Blackness is a very American thing. It's the foundation of American society in a lot of ways. Um, there's, also, there's a lot of books. Honestly, uh, gosh, I don't want to get carried away. I could easily give you 12. Start with that one. <laughs> and then honestly, there's so many levels to this. So look up what's interesting to you because I guarantee wherever it is that you live, wherever it is that you sit in life, your industry, your hobbies, your, your, your place of existence somehow intersects with issues of justice and with issues of racism and anti-Blackness. So look up whatever it is you're interested in and anti-Blackness, anti-racism, and you'll find something. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Mel. This was no this was wonderful. <laughs> like David said, thank I learned you. so much. Uh, definitely enjoyed this. I hope that you enjoyed it as well. And uh, I did. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak. I, I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And like Absolutely. I said, we might need a part two, but you know, <laughs> we can, we can talk <laughs> off air about the logistics on that. But, uh, <laughs> <All right. laughs> Thank you very much, though, yeah, guys. I do appreciate yeah, it, definitely. And on behalf of Black Lives Matter Korea, we appreciate the shine, too. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And uh, thank you, everyone, uh, who is tuning in. Uh, this is another episode of Sound of Water podcast. Um, and we'll see you guys later. Peace out. Peace. Be water, my friend.